Amen. If we believe what we just praised, then let's pray that. Um, Father, in the name of Jesus, we, um, even as our young ones are going to their special place of discipleship, Lord God, and the room is being resituated for our own discipleship through your word, um, we ask that that wouldn't just be a beautiful word on the screen or a well-sang lyric. We ask that it would be, Lord God, the statement of our lives, that all glory be to Christ. We pray, O oh God, that, um, that you would search every category and corridor of our hearts and lives and show us what that isn't actually true, so that as we sang that, Lord God, it becomes our prayer, it becomes our fight, Lord God, that you would receive all glory. Turn over every stone, O oh God, show us what we need to make that so in our commitment and devotion to you. We ask, O oh God, that as we prepare to uh, continue in our series this morning, that you would turn over new stones in our lives. You would allow us to experience a demonstration of your spirit, as the Apostle Paul would say, so that people's faith would rest in the power of the resurrected Jesus Christ and not in the oratory ability of the speaker. We pray, O oh God, that um, doctrine would be declared our sins would be reproved, we would be corrected, but we would also be instructed, Lord God, in righteousness so that we'd be thoroughly furnished for every good work. Pray, O oh God, that you would allow us to pass through familiar scriptural territory but see new gems of truth, that even as we pass through new areas, we will be freshly wowed, Lord God, by the strength and beauty of your word. I pray, O oh God, that every person here, be it a member or not, would walk away in some way, having had an encounter with you that would make it clear that you have been here and that there is no waste in your economy. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, good morning to you. It's good seeing you, Clay. And thank you, brother. Well, as I mentioned in my prayer, we are in our doctrine series and if you are new to us or just getting dialed back in, perhaps after a family vacation, this is only the second installment on that series, uh, which is going to last for the summer or a large portion of the summer entitled Doctrine. And the doctrinal category that we are specifically looking at is that of ecclesiology. Can I hear you say ecclesiology? That's right, ecclesiology. It is the study of what? Not the ecclesia, but the ecclesia. Uh, which is a study of the church. The ecclesia is a Latin word for the called out ones. And so that's who you are. You are the ecclesia. The reason that we want to work through this series on the doctrine of the church is because we want to simply make sure that our framing and our understanding of what it means to be the church is much more robust than simply meeting in a building that has columns out front and a steeple on the top. I believe that the Word of God has much to say about the nature of the church, and so I want to walk us through some of those explorations. And particularly, I want to take a look at a text that is found in the book of Matthew, which is the very first time that Jesus actually uses the word church. I believe that when you're studying your Bible, you ought to always, from a student standpoint, pay attention to something called the rule of first mention. 
That is, the first time something is mentioned really has a foundational role in shaping the way those ideas and that doctrine is crafted throughout the rest of the Bible. So uh, we're going to be looking at the first time the word church is used in Scripture. But before we go there, we're going to look at the book of Colossians, just a brief passage that you and I pray through together. And it's Colossians chapter 1, verses 17 and 18. You'll see it on the screen if you don't have a Bible with you. It says, and he is, talking about Jesus, before all things, and in him all things hold together. You prayed that. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. He is the head of the church. He is its president. He is its CEO. He is its CFO. He is its COO. He is the entire C-suite. Now, interestingly enough about the Christ and him being the head of this entity known as the church is like unlike most entities that you and I are part of, we get a chance to participate in who the leader is. That is, we vote them in or we have boards that can remove them or we can file a complaint that may someday may shake uh, things up at the top. But unlike any and every other organization that we can be a part of, even our own nation, we don't get to vote, hire, or fire Jesus in or out of his role. He is the head of the church. He is eternally its head, that he might be preeminent in all things. Well, not only does the scriptures declare that Jesus is the head of the church, but because he is the head, then I think we can learn something from him when it comes to understanding the heart of the church. Have you ever worked for a, a company, maybe a school if you're a teacher, or any organization, a real estate firm? You had a vested interest in knowing when the bosses came to town because you wanted to not only hear their vision or hear their resume or their accolades, you wish you could maybe get a lunch with them so that you could understand not only their head or their ideas around how they built the particular thing, but you also want to understand their heart. Anybody ever felt that? Anybody ever know that? Anybody ever felt a certain tension maybe while you were working or living inside of an, a certain organization, maybe even something like a church? Like you started going to a local church and then there was a leadership change. And that person, uh, while they may have had certain functional attributes that were, you were familiar with, they seemed to have a different head or a different heart for what the church was going to be about. Have you ever experienced leadership change in that way? Well, the Bible declares for us that the unique role of Jesus Christ is an unchanging one and he remains preeminent as head of the church. And so then, what exactly is his heart? I believe that we can learn much for, from Jesus' heart for the church by looking at Matthew chapter 16, verses 8, 13, and following. Just five verses we'll take on. It says, Now when Jesus came to the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. And some say Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? Peter, Simon Peter, replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered, saying, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And here it is, here's Jesus' heart for the church, or at least some aspect of it. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail 
against it. If Jesus is the head of the church, he has every right to speak into the heart of the church. And I believe that the heart of what the church is supposed to be is captured right here in this particular text. Take a look at the screen behind me. And if you see that image, this is what a gate would have looked like in the ancient Near Eastern world. You notice that Jesus says that he was going to build his church on a rock and that the gates of hell would not prevail against it. I don't know what kind of image may have come into your mind when you thought about a gate, whether you thought about a chain link fence with that little clasp that falls down that you could eventually put a padlock under if you wanted to try to keep someone out. Maybe you thought about uh, uh, maybe one of those uh, uh, lever type deals where if you show your ID, it kind of a cord pulls it up or lets you in and out of a parking lot. I don't know if you thought about that kind of gate. I don't know if you maybe thought about uh, perhaps something more robust, like a wrought iron gate that might surround a castle or maybe some rich person's property with spiky spindles at the top to keep people from being able to climb over or something with barbed wire. I don't know what you thought about when you thought about a gate, but this is actually what the disciples would have had in mind. They would have been very familiar with the landscape of their world and how gates represented two to three things that were very, very, very significant. First and foremost, yes, the gate would have been a significant point of entry in and out of the city. So when Jesus says that the gates of hell will not prevail against it, what does he mean? Number one, he means that the, the, the gates of hell, its opening, its points of entry and access will not be able to prevent the church from doing its work. And we're going to explore some of that work in just a moment. But there's also something else that happened in ancient Near Eastern city gates. If you're familiar with your Bible, you'll know that when the two angels went to rescue Lot from the land of Sodom and Gomorrah, he went out and met them at the city gate. If you've read other places in the scripture, you'll note it in Proverbs 31, the Bible says that the, the husband of the uh, a virtuous woman would not be ashamed at the gate. In Psalm 127, the Bible even speaks about the man who has many arrows in his quiver and how he will have a great name at the gate. If you read the story of Ruth, you'll know that it was Boaz when he wanted to redeem or function as the kinsman redeemer for Ruth. He conducted that business at the gate. So there is this, this element to which the gate is not only a physical structure that represents access points in and out of a particular region or city, but it also functioned in much the same way that a city hall for, would for us. It is a place where legally binding agreements were being brokered. It would be like a city hall, but just not tucked away in the center. So when Jesus says that the gates of hell will not prevail against the church that he is building, I believe he's getting at at least two things. One, that we will plunder the gates. We will go in and they will not be able to stop us, the church, from doing what God has called us to do. And also the initiatives, the principles, the ideas, the politics, the policies, the strategies, and the initiatives. You know, things like roaming back and forth, the Satan is looking for whom he might devour. Or trying to steal, kill, and destroy, right? Others, these are, these are initiatives that emanate from the gates of Hades. Or trying to effectively keep the souls of those that are in there. So if the church is going to prevail, or if the gates of hell will not prevail against the church, it must mean, since the gates of hell are a stationary object, it must mean the church is on the offensive. 
And that's the title of today's message is The Offensive Church. Last week you learned about the transformative church. Today we are talking about the offensive church. And I believe that based on what the scriptures teach, and we'll unpack this together, that the church must be offensive to achieve Jesus' objective. Remember, he's the head of the church, so he gets to call the shots and determine what the heart of the church should be. And in this rule of first mention, the first time we hear about the church, it isn't marked by a charter toward great children's ministry, sprawling parking lots, flags, and beautiful greetings, and wonderful worship. It is marked by advancing in such a way that the gates of hell would not be able to prevail against it. The church must be offensive to achieve Jesus's objective. I believe that the offensive nature of the church is found in at least, in at least no less than four principles that will be right here found in the passage that I read earlier there in the book of Matthew. For note takers, I'll give them to you in advance. Somebody is excited about these four things. I'm getting ready to roll out. The first one is the church is, is, is offensive. We're on the offensive in providing clarification. I'll, expl I'll explain more of what this means in just a moment. Number one, clarification. Number two, the church ought to be actively involved in declaration. Number three, the church ought to be actively participating in revelation. And number four, the church ought to be actively involved in the work of salvation. If the church is going to live up to Jesus' objective, as is outlined in Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 through 18, these four things will be part of our offensive nature. Let's take them just a couple of verses at a time. In verse 13 and 14, the Bible says, Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they gave a variety of different names. Some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, some say Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. This is an important conversation. If you remember that the grand scheme of the book of Matthew is to illustrate for the Jewish primary readership that Jesus Christ is a king, that he is the Christ. He is the one that you came, you've been looking for and anticipating, the Messiah, the divine leader that God is is sending to the world. But secondarily, or, or in addition to that, Matthew, at this point in chapter 16, Jesus has been, has been moving along and people are getting curious about Jesus and asking him, hey man, whoever you are, why don't you give us some signs? Why don't you do some wonders to confirm who you are? And so Jesus has now pulled aside his disciples. He says, you know what? Let's have a little pop quiz. Let's check in real quick. Who do people say that I am? A little tip for you, when you're reading your Bible and God asks a question, he's never asking from a position of curiosity or ignorance. He already knows the answer. So why does he ask these questions? He asks these questions in the same way that you as parents ask these questions, like when you come home from work and you say, who left the garage door up? Why is this fridge still open? I thought we said we were going to have these, the dining room clean when I got home. The reason that we ask questions we already know the answer to is to bring about accountability in the answering of the question. And so Jesus is asking the question not because he's unfamiliar with what the public pulse is, but because he wants to bring about clarification. He wants there to be clarity in the hearts of his disciples. He wants there to be clarity in the surrounding public and the community. They need to know exactly who Jesus is, but he's checking to see if the disciples are really dialed in to what people are saying about him. 
This is an important work for us as a church too. See, if we as a church are, are, are going to uh, be involved in providing clarification on the identity of Jesus, we must be willing to get actively involved in verifying what the general public around us believes about Jesus. Man, we are in an, in, an incredibly unique, opportune place geographically. You go two traffic lights that way and you ask someone, who do people say that Jesus is? Oh, he is the poster child of white oppression. Can't believe you want to talk about that. This was the religion that was forced upon us as people of color and stripped us of our culture and made us comply. You go two traffic lights this way. Jesus Christ is the billboard for all bigotry and unless your church is gay affirming, you're probably filled with MAGA Republicans and you will represent everything that we don't want to be anything about. Somewhere in between, there are people who have other views of Jesus, but, but these divergent views of who people say Jesus is live right here within arm's reach of this very platform. You drove past a thousand opinions on your way here today. But where people are in their understanding of who Jesus is and verifying that is a key part of the church's offensive. We are taking the initiative to make those discoveries so that we can then clarify who he is. This work of clarification is not unique. It's not brand new. You see, some will say Jeremiah, some will say John the Baptist, because they look at Jesus and they see hints and clues that remind them of these other biblical characters that they've seen in other places. People in contemporary times are doing the same thing. They have hints and clues from their time in Sunday school. They have hints and clues from tele-evangelists. They have hints and clues from people who live next door to them who say that they come to this place called the church. Everybody has pieces of the puzzle. And if you've ever worked a puzzle, anybody here work a puzzle? Let me check in. Anybody work a puzzle? Anybody work a puzzle? All right. Now, what's interesting about a puzzle is unassembled in the box, let's just say you got a thousand-piece puzzle. When you break it out and put it on the tabletop, every piece is relevant even though it's not a complete picture. But what most people do when it comes to their opinions and their ideas of the Christ is they've got these true fragments that become essentially incorrect because they are not connected to the whole. Clarification for the local church is a process of discovering which pieces of the puzzle people have and helping them to pull it together based on the larger picture of what the Bible says Jesus is about and who his church is. That's our job. It's to, it's to coach and work with people through piecing the puzzle together. Where do I get this from? Well, I get it from here. Acts chapter 17, verse 16. Look at the apostle Paul's work going into a largely unchurched region. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him because he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. So two main places he set up. He went to both religious centers and he pulled up at the pizza shop and the coffee places. He, he went to places where religious thought, synagogues were regularly exchanged, and he also opened a Bible at his desk at work. 
He was both in the marketplace and in the religious place, and he was reasoning with them. He was sitting down with people saying, what piece of the puzzle do you have? Now, if you know anything about the Apostle Paul's sermon on Mars Hill, he went around and looked at the panorama of idol gods that they had set up a statue for each one, and there was one that said to the unknown God because they left room in their lives for the one that they hadn't met yet. And he says, I want to talk to you about this one the unknown God, and begin to fill in the blanks, piece together the puzzle, share with them the larger biblical picture, and give clarification on who the one true and living God was. That's not Paul's work alone. He's gone home to be with the Lord. That's our work. It is our job. It is my job to be actively about the business of verifying some of the views of Jesus, incorrect and incomplete as they may be, broken like little pieces of a puzzle. And it is our job to go there and help them piece it together to provide clarification. It is our job to take the initiative to do this verification so that we can then clarify who Jesus is because Jesus is taking the initiative Right? If you want to do what Jesus does, he is taking the initiative in clarifying for his disciples what is being said in the public so that he can clarify it furthermore for them. If Jesus found it necessary to clarify what people thought about him, even though he already knows what he thinks about him, how much more should we be doing the same? The church ought to be on the offensive. We ought to be taking the initiative. And you know what? Hell's gates, hell's policy hopes that we don't. You see, hell has no hope of stopping any one of you who are currently followers of Christ to no longer be a believer. You, you cannot be taken from the hand of God. You cannot be unsealed from the Holy Spirit. You are forevermore his if you really are his. You are forevermore his. He has sealed you. He has purchased you. You are no longer your own. And so what hell wants to do because it can't take your salvation is hope you'll at least be silent about it and that you won't take the initiative that you'll be afraid to go on the offensive. Hell's policy hopes that we'll remain silent and disengaged so that they can continue to steal, kill, and destroy the lives of would-be believers who are sitting in active proximity with us in traffic, in the HOAs, in schools, in classrooms, and on jobs, at lunches, hoping that we'll just sit there and be quiet for sake of not being offensive. Satan hopes that. That's part of what the gates of hell are, 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 are just gaming for. We are not waiting for them to ask us. We are actively engaged in asking them. That is the mindset of Christ. He went to his disciples. He didn't sit in a corner, covered up with his arms folded and said, I wonder if some guys who have an interest in changing the world are going to come by today. He went to them. He recruited disciples. And even once he had them, he continued to go to others. If you're going to be like Jesus in the most simplistic way, you're taking the initiative. You're on the offensive. Let's take a look at verses 15 and 16. Jesus not only asked them, who do people say that I am, but then he kind of narrows the focus. After they asked, you know, some say John the Baptist, or answered some say John the Baptist and Elijah or Jeremiah or one of the prophets, Jesus goes, well, contrastingly, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son 
of the living God. Three definitives, the Christ, the Son of the living God. Ladies and gentlemen, our first job is clarification. Our second one is declaration. But your declaration of who Christ is in providing clarification to the world will only be as robust as you have a definitive conviction on who he is. Are we definitively convicted of what it means to be convinced of what it means to, for Christ, for, for Jesus to be the Christ? By the way, it's not his last name. It means that he is the king, the Lord. Do we definitively understand what it means for him to be the son, the exclusive son, his one and only? Do we know what it means for him to be the son of the living God, that there is but one God? Do we believe these? Are we, are, we, are we fuzzy on these details? Because the fuzziness shows up when we go out to declare the gospel. Revelation chapter 1 verse 5 says something super powerful that is, a, I hope, our shared conviction. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, who is the firstborn of the dead, the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us a kingdom of priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. A couple of questions for you. Revelation chapter 1 verse 5 gives us a couple of salient convictions that I would form in the, uh, in the way of a question. How did he win you and how has he washed you? How did he win you and how has he washed you? Do you have definitive conviction on how he won you? How did he become your Lord? How was he victorious in everything else that you used to celebrate, that you were bowing your knee to? Is he the king of kings? But did his kingship start with the, the kingdom of your own heart? Did he dethrone you as your own master? How did he win you? Are you convinced? And how did he wash you? What were the things that you were doing beforehand? How has your life radically changed? Just in case you were thinking that, that, that uh, having a definitive conviction on Christ required a degree. No. Are you clear on how he won you and how he washed you? No one can take that from you. No one can argue you down on the great before and after of your own life. One of the most compelling forces on all of the internet is to see a person who used to weigh five, six, seven hundred pounds standing sideways now at 110 with these size 65 pants and they're, and they're standing in both sides. I can't argue with that. I might not like how you got there, but I can't, I can't deny the fact that you're there. And what, I, what I'm saying is the definitive nature of your conviction is exactly that. Folks might not like how you lost the weight. People might not like how you, how you went about the journey. People may not like the brand name of the, of, the, of the stuff that you were on, but they can't deny that it works. Our declaration will only be as definitive as our conviction. The Bible goes further, though. When it comes to being a church that is on the offensive, not only do we, are we in the work of clarification and declaration, but it says more about this work of declaration because these same disciples who came to, or Peter who came to a good conclusion, the Bible doesn't end in chapter 16 of Matthew. It goes all the way over to the Great Commission that they should take these same principles and teach them throughout the world to everyone that they encounter. And the Bible goes even further beyond the edges of the book of Matthew to places like this where it defines us as soldiers, interestingly enough, in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10, and says, finally, be strong 
in the Lord and in, his, in the strength of his might. The Lord anticipates and recognizes that some of us are shy and introverted and don't have it all together and don't know all the great words and don't have wonderful arguments that have been crafted. But he says, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. No, he is not asking you to adopt a new personality style. He's saying, will you trust me? Put on the whole armor of God, you might be able to withstand the schemes of the devil. You're on offense. You're not wrestling with flesh and blood, but against rulers and against authorities and against cosmic powers of the present darkness. And then he goes down further and he, he, unlines, he outlines and, and unpacks all these different uh, aspects of the, of the Christian armor because you're a soldier and the only offensive weapon in your arsenal is the word of God, the sword. This is how the Lord defines you. Not a type A personality vigilante that loves to run up and talk to anybody and be brash and rude. This is how the Lord defines you, as having this offensive weapon, which is the Word of God. Informing the world of the Word of God is one of the most offensive weapons we will ever use. It is how you have been built. This is how you have been defined. Look at 2 Timothy Chapter 4, verse 2, preach the word, be ready in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound doctrine, but have itching ears and they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will run away from listening to the truth and one or all into myths. The Bible has already anticipated every ounce of opposition you will ever experience and says, preach when it's popular and unpopular. That is in season and out of season, whether people like it or not. Ladies and gentlemen, let me say this. We are always on the offensive in some way. If you recall from the book of John, Jesus would define the idea of uh, spreading the word of God like a sower. Sometimes we are sowers. We're just spreading copious amounts of seeds everywhere we go. We're not waiting for the ground to grow. We are actively engaging. We are on the offense, throwing seeds fully recognizing that some of the seeds will be gobbled up by other creatures that are coming through, fully recognizing that some of the seeds will be trampled on hard pavement, fully recognizing that some of the seeds will be burnt up, but fully believing that some of the seeds will grow. And the percentage of seeds that will be at gobbled up, scorched out, choked, or, or, or never grow, never dissuades a faithful farmer from still throwing seeds season after season. We are called to be sowers. But guess what? I just read you another text. We are also called to be soldiers. Soldiers sign up knowing that they are going to see significant opposition, and that doesn't stop them from being enlisted or moving forward on their mission. Sometimes you're a sower. Sometimes you're a soldier. But guess what else the Word of God says? That the Word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword, and it divides to the piercing asunder of flesh and marrow, thoughts and intents, and the motives of the heart. It is extremely precise. Sometimes you're a sower. Sometimes you're a soldier. Sometimes you're a surgeon. And all of these are offensive jobs. Yes, I don't like the idea of what a surgeon has to do but I like cancer less. I like cancer more. I, no, I like cancer less. You hear me carefully? Uh, uh, what a surgeon wants to do is invasive. But if my life has got to the point where I need surgery, I need surgery regardless of what the post-operative pain may be or even what my trepidations may be in the moment. Because whatever is underneath that needs to be gotten out is deadly to me 
or it is destructive to my life. Sometimes you're a soldier, sometimes you're a sower, sometimes you're a surgeon. But guess what else? The Bible says you declare the word in season and out of season. Sometimes you're a siren. Sometimes you are there making noise that is annoying to almost everyone around, but it is comforting to the person who is inside that vehicle being rushed to the hospital. First time I was in New York City as an adult. I went a couple of times as a kid, wasn't paying attention. I remember going as an adult, and I remember being blown away in traffic in the heart of Manhattan, and an ambulance is trying to come through, and nobody is budging because they have grown dull to the sound of the siren. Sometimes you're a siren, and it doesn't matter who gets woken up, whose feathers get ruffled, you are a part of the offense. You're part of the church. And if you were the driver of an ambulance and you felt like you were bringing through the, the traffic that doesn't want to move and that doesn't want to go your way, if you felt like you were bringing life-saving care to somebody on the other side, you wouldn't care who was being annoyed by its sound. You would let her rip. Sometimes you're a sower. Sometimes you're a soldier. Sometimes you are a surgeon. Sometimes you are a... Sometimes you are a siren. But you know what we are never? We are never the, smalling, the smiling Walmart greeter of the gospel. Anybody here work at Walmart as a greeter? This is no insult to your job. You, you continue in that gainful employment. But there is no metaphorical version of the smiling Walmart greeter for the kingdom of God. There is no, there is no place for the person who just stands there with the Christian vest on, smiling, hoping that everybody that sees me has a good day and I have absolutely no engagement. Go on past me, get what you need in these doors behind me, but never mind me that I'm here. That's not the posture of the believer. We're not just here to help people have a nice day and to make them feel courteously cared for. The church is to be on the offensive. Ladies and gentlemen, every single one of you looking back at me, I don't care how nice you are, I'll never call you a rude person, but I can assure you that you are offensive. You are an offensive person. Let me tell you when you are. You'll wake up Monday morning, or maybe even when you leave this church, and you'll get in your car, and you will have a definitive, clear destination and a determinate time that you're supposed to get there. And it does not matter how many other people are going in the opposite direction that are crowding your lane. You will do whatever it takes to get where you're supposed to be. You will not pass your exit or miss going home because somebody in the lane on your left or right will not let you over to, to go to your exit. You'll begin nicely. You'll bite your bottom lip and you'll hope they'll let you over. But then you'll flip on your blinker. As the exit gets closer, you'll let down the window. And as the exit gets even closer, you'll grip the steering wheel with white knuckles or brown knuckles, depending on how you move. And you will veer into the lane and let people know, I am coming over. I am about to offend you. Why? I know where I'm going and what time I need to get there. This is my exit. I'm prepared to offend you. This ain't my normal move, but I know where I'm going. But guess what? Guess who doesn't care if they get cut off or blocked in traffic? People that don't know where they're going. People that don't have a clear and definitive destination, nor a time frame of urgency that drives them to get there. So this is not about nice versus rude. 
This is about definitively understanding where you're going and a degree of urgency that accompanies getting there. Verses 17. And Jesus answered and said, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona. Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. The church is on the offensive. We're doing clarification. We're doing declaration. But we are also, we are clarification, declaration, but we're also uh, in the business of revelation. Now, revelation is God's job. Declaration is our job, but revelation is God's job. Uh, John chapter 6 verse 44 says that no one can come to the Son except the Father draw him. Jesus acknowledged that this accurate conclusion of who Jesus is, that Peter didn't arrive there as a function of his intellect alone, that the Father had to reveal it to him. Such is the case with every single person who comes to know Jesus. Our job is not to win arguments, it is to present the gospel in such a way that the Lord is actively working on winning the hearts. Release yourself from that burden of believing that because you planted a seed or you sounded a siren or you even worked a little surgery intellectually or emotionally that the person didn't come, that that somehow was a lost effort. No, God is in the business of doing the revelation if we'll do ours as in declaration. The Bible says that, that, that our principal mechanism for declaration is the gospel. Romans chapter 1, verse 16, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. Listen to this. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. I don't know exactly how the power of God does what it does, but there's a lot of things that I don't know the power of and it doesn't stop me. When I plant grass in the backyard, I'm like a preschooler. I'm just putting a seed in there and hoping that water, sun, and waiting is going to produce a, a favorable outcome. Maybe there's a botanist in the room, and you understand at the molecular level what's happening. But guess what? Regardless of where we are on our understanding the spectrum of how this growth took place, we both know the same thing. A seed's got to go out there in order for growth to come up. And that's the act of obedience that God is calling each one of us into. We participate in revelation, the revelation of Jesus Christ through active proclamation of his name. How many of you in the great city of Atlanta have ever passed by a wooded or perhaps a vacant lot? There was nothing going on out there, but maybe a small fence went up and there was a sign out that said, coming soon, mixed use, blah, blah, blah. Uh, and it gave you a certain amount of square footage. Anybody ever seen this sign? Anybody? Just a show of hands if you've seen this sign. Okay. Now, in seeing that sign, that sign sits out there from the start of the project to the finish of the project. There are some of you in here who are civil engineers. There's some of you who sit on various councils that, that, that do code regulation. There's some of you who drive heavy equipment. Some of you who are involved in the construction trades. So in the room, there are all kinds of understandings of what's go about to happen when you see that sign. And there are some people who are clueless as to what's going to happen until they have their grand opening. But that sign sits there continuously declaring what is coming. That sign is you. That's you actively declaring the truth of what's coming regardless of how clear it might be to people in their various levels of experience about what God is building. That's you and I. The sign that just simply says, here's the finished product of what God is doing. That's your job. That's my job. We declare. And God is the one who does the disclosure. Granted, there'll be some people who won't take it seriously until they have their grand opening. There will be some people who take it seriously and get excited from day one and can't wait for it to open. But your job and my job is to be, simply be the sign to just declare what is coming. So what exactly are we declaring? 
We're declaring the gospel that Jesus Christ died on the cross voluntarily as an act of love, substitutionarily in our place because it should have been us, necessarily because the wrath of God is on every person who has ever sinned and Jesus' sacrifice necessarily satisfies that and nothing else can. I don't have an amount of good works that can satisfy the wrath of God against me. And it is a victorious resurrection because I need someone who can lord over sin, death, and the devil in all of its forms. And so salvation is part of our work. And I tell you, Peter, that on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. The church is built as souls are being brought from the gates of hell to the gates of heaven. There is no in-between room. There is no neutral posture. Jesus, in John chapter 3, verse 16, one of the most loving texts that everybody loves to quote, says that our standing default position is one of condemnation. Our current position, not like our later position, our current position is one of condemnation. And it is those who believe in Jesus Christ who come to see salvation. This is what the business of the church is. The church is not built when the building is full because new people came from another place. It is the church is being effectively and properly built when people move from condemnation to justification, when people move from darkness to light, when people move from being enemies of God to being the child of God, when people move from the danger and the risk of a life separated from him in eternity to being a family and a member in the safety of God. This is the kind of stuff that all of heaven cheers about when a, a single soul becomes saved. And my prayer for us today is that we would reorient our scoreboard. That when we think about the building of the church, that yes, we get excited when we see new, see new members join. But we get all the more excited when we see new souls come into the kingdom. Why do I need to have that scoreboard? Because this is Bible scoreboard, Jude chapter, well Jude, it's only chapter in verse 22. And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment that is stained by the flesh. First Peter chapter 2 verse 9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim, here we are again, the excellences of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. You were once not a people, and you are now God's people who once did not receive mercy, but now you have. This is when the church celebrates, when those who didn't have mercy come to see his mercy. But how are they going to hear about this mercy? According to the scriptures, it is we who have received it who are supposed to go back and proclaim it. Oh, man. Does anybody remember the... Uh, I know there's a few people in the room who remember this, but I'll, I'll share it anyway. We don't even have commercials anymore. Anybody remember the, uh, the hair club for men? You remember the hair club for men? my brother. Let me tell you about the hair club for men. I, I promise we're closing. <laughs> that's, that's kind of like a meme, right? How many times have I closed? Um, the hair club for men was this commercial with all these guys who would go and swim in a pool and show how this, these new hair implants they had received uh, still look like natural hair. You could go to the barbershop and get it. It looked so naturally responded to combing and all these different things. It was just natural hair implants. And at the end of the commercial, the person who was leading the commercial said, I'm not just the president, I'm also a client. You remember that? I'm also a client. That blew me away, I was like 12 years old and I had all my hair. I was like, man, if I ever need hair, I'm going to the hair club for men, but it's cool to be like this now, so I don't bother with it. 
But when he looked at the camera and said, I'm not only a client, I'm not only the president, but I'm also a client, you have been, you have received the mercy of the men's hair club. No wonder you can speak with such convictional integrity. No wonder you're so convinced that this stuff worked. It's in your head. And what I'm saying to you, ladies and gentlemen, as, 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 as you're thinking about the gospel, I'm not asking you again to go back and get theological degrees. You don't even have to take any special classes. I'm just asking you to look at your life and see where have you also been a client of the Lord's incredible mercy and grace. People will listen to you. And if they don't, keep moving because your job is to proclaim. Your job is just to reason. Your role is just to be a sower, is to be a, a soldier, is to be a surgeon, but not just a smiling greeter. Let's pray. Father, in the name of Jesus, would you search each one of our lives and help us where we're afraid to be a part of the offensive church. Deliver us, oh God, from wanting to be the Walmart of the Word of God, where people just feel super comfortable getting what they need and leave. Lord God, help us to become an offensive church. We are on the offensive, not to be rude, not to ruffle feathers, but to do what you've called us to do. And Lord God, as we step up to the plate and become more offensive, as we go on the offense, rather than being knocked back on our heels on the defense, would you meet us? Would you meet us in our in our fear and dissolve it with a show of faith? Would you meet us in our stumbling words and in our incomplete sentences and in our incomplete arguments? Would you meet us in our nervousness in that moment and just allow it to be whisked away by our peace that surpasses all understanding when we share with our family member, when we share with our coworker, when we share with our friend, when we share with our neighbor, when we just simply open our mouths over a cup of coffee and at lunch and ask people, so what do you think? about Jesus? Do you have any spiritual opinions? What is working in your life to produce peace? Lord God, arm us with questions. Lord God, help us to prepare our day to share the gospel the same way we prepare for our sales presentations. We prepare for our meetings with clients. Before, the same way we prepare to, to go meet with a patient. The same way we prepare to teach our children if we're a school teacher. Lord God, move on our hearts in such a way that we would view ourselves as being members of your church, a part of the kingdom, and that evangelism is not something that we do, but proclaiming your name is just a part of who we are. Help us, Jesus. We need you in this way. Help us to be strong in the might and the strength that you have provided. Deliver us from our apathy. Fill us with boldness by your spirit and allow us to see the kingdom grow as a result of what's happening in this community. Give us witty ways, Lord God, to share the gospel. Give us simplistic ways to share the gospel. Give us deeply convictional ways to share the truth of what you did for us on the cross. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Man, if you're here today, thank you, brother. If you're here today, just before we worship, and you do not know the Lord Jesus, or you're wondering if you really know him, the God, of the, the, the scripture, this, this Jesus that I have been talking about, you're saying this sounds like a foreign language, but I'm curious. And you want to know more about what it means to follow Jesus. We have some members of our prayer team. Where are you, prayer team? I'd love to, uh, those hands are going up. Some people that are standing in this room. 
Maybe you already, if you don't know Jesus, uh, go and see one of these people. They can talk to you more about what it means to trust the gospel. This Jesus who died voluntarily for you on the cross, raised victoriously, victoriously from the dead. Maybe you are a person who has apathy about sharing the gospel because you don't want to offend, but you are now convinced that you need to be on the offensive, and you're saying, Lord, give me the boldness, I just don't have it. You can go and pray with some of these people that are standing up at the back of the sanctuary. I would ask this, I've already prayed for us, but, but wherever you are, kind of in your gospel sharing journey, man, if you feel like you need to be jarred out of a place of apathy, would you go and pray with these people while we worship the Lord together? Amen. Let's worship him.